This is Murphy and Friends, and this is a meeting at the NAACP where they asked me to speak. So it might be a three-second delay, but here I go. A little dispute, and they separated their ways. So the younger guys, and it was part of the NAACP, started the NAACP with Mary White and and some uh, black people. Now, the prerequisite to get into the NAACP, this is in the NAACP history. That's where I got this from when I was teaching it. The prerequisite was, and I, I really want you to listen to this, is to have uh, an honest white person and uh, an intelligent black. So, you can see that the standards were different and you had to be intelligent. And, what, and who did they choose? Du Bois. Mm -hmm. And uh, Du Bois and, and Garrison Jr. had a falling out too because it was Crisis Magazine and Du Bois wanted one way, Garrison wanted another way. And so they fell apart and it became the longest standing black magazine is Crisis. Uh, New York had the second largest enslavement in the United States, right behind South Carolina. And you had Africans and uh, indigenous Americans on Long Island, the Shinnecock. You should go to see the Shinnecock Nation, and every Labor Day, they have a big uh, powwow. And the most interesting thing about seeing it is that they look like people in this room. Because the Africans and the uh, indigenous people fought a very bloody war. And it was called, it was called the Massacre of Maiden Lane. Now, you know, one of my first jobs out of high school was Maiden Lane, and I thought the name was so cute. Had no, I had no concept. That's where they had the massacre, where they, where they dragged black people in the street with horses, burnt them at the stake, took limb for limb, just tore them apart. Had no idea of that. And like most blacks in New York, I mean, I taught a long time, never had any idea of African history in America. Whether you was in the, in the Caribbean, it was in South America, Venezuela, Guyana, Suriname, no idea. And I'm no different. Many people who came to New York want to leave that part of their lives behind. And they successfully did. Uh, and a person, when I, was, I went to Evander Charles, anybody who knows about the Bronx knows Evander Charles. And this white girl said, would you like to go to a meeting? I said, yeah, yeah. 16. And I, I went to court, the Congress of Racial Equality. That set the whole trail of my life becoming a professional study of black studies and teaching. What I knew, even after I retired, there's so much information now. I mean, 
in, in the mere fact that blacks escaped from Florida, I mean from South Carolina, Georgia, to go to Florida for, for freedom. And you have blacks then with Spanish names. And that was their life. I mean, there's just so much information. And what you learn when you're, as a student, maybe one-tenth, not one percent, one-tenth of the knowledge. And I tell my students, you got a whole whole lot to go. We know why there's Wall Street. Wall Street was there to sell us. That was the, the marketplace. You would come and you would bet on this winch who's 25 and her child who's three years old. That's what Wall Street, because all of us like to say, you know, I got my money in Wall Street. Well, Wall Street was a slave market. And we should know that. It is very, very important. And you had the Underground Railroad two blocks over. Broadway was where the New York Times was. And the New York Times said, uh, had some of the worst words about black people that you can think of. And on Nassau Street, parallel to Broadway, was uh, the abolitionist uh, newspapers. And the, they have one lamp at City Hall that's still there to remind people that was the hanging lamp. Mm -hmm. Just a little few things. But uh, going further west towards church, you had uh, underground railroad right there, right in front of you, which was incredible. So we think that some, some of the things happening now are new, such as the future to that of three or more black people, Negroes, are staying together, they can be incarcerated, which is true. If you've lived in the projects, and certainly I have, if three of you together, you will be fine. That's just a fact of life. So uh, that fugitive law is still very much alive except nobody's, well, you know, they, they can put you in jail. Even if you live in the building, you're not supposed to be hanging around the street. That's the reality. Now, I was asked to give you some books I thought you might want to read. One is Sojourner Truth. And, you know, everybody knows that line, Ain't I a Woman? Please, discard that. Just read the book. Uh, it's a thin book, maybe a hundred or so pages. And it talks about how she spoke Dutch, that was her language. How she saw her mother, and she writes it, in depression. Because every time she had a child, they would take the child away inside. And they were in damp basements. And so at some point, Sojourner uh, <coughs> was sold. That was not her, her uh, birth name. And she was beat daily because the person that bought her spoke English and she spoke Dutch. And she was beat all of the time. And to me, she was such a courageous woman. And New York put a ban on slavery around 1829, between 1827 and 1829. You say, well, that, that's good. But then there's uh, 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 half slaves. You know what half slaves are. It's like indentured work. So even though this rule, uh, 
more happened, Sojourner had to do 25 years of time before, before she was really free. And she walked a great deal of time. She was upstate New York, I would say central New York, with no shoes on, cold all the time. And she had children. And this law, you know, for young people, you had to do 25 years. But as, as an adult, you still had to do 25 years. It was called half free. And someone, and I think that you've heard of it, blackbirds, you've heard of, who came and snatched people who weren't supposedly be free. They, they would snatch it in the night. Now Boston fought, so you're not coming up here and doing this stuff. <clears throat> so they snatched her son. I shouldn't tell you anymore, because this is an incredible story of her life and the pain she went through, but she sued the government. Now think of the time when she was beat all the time, couldn't speak English. All that was about her. Okay, what I plan to talk about today, that's just things that you should get. Negro in New York, David Walker. Please, David Walker. Uh, was murdered somewhere around the early 1800s, <coughs> 1820s. You have to get, it's David Walker's, <coughs> I hope someone can look it up. Uh, he wrote about our freedom. And when I first saw this, I was like 23, and I was up in a camp as a counselor. And I thought that was in the midst of the Civil Rights Movement, that this person was talking about what was happening today. He was talking about what was happening 300 years ago. And it's an incredible, David Walker appeal. That's what it is. Okay, that's, that's that information. The other information I'm going to get, which I think is a crisis, a crisis in the black community, no matter where you go. I started tracing this, I have, I have my notes, I don't want to think. I started to trace this in 1982. And statistically, nothing has changed. There, at any given time, two million people in prison. Black males are only 50% in prison. But let's start from the beginning. A black male between birth and 35 years old will be shot, will be killed. 5% of all black males will be killed. That's just a statistical fact. The other statistical fact is one in every three black males have a record. They may have never gone to jail, but they pleaded guilty to something because as I was in the court system, they would say, you go to the court now. I would always have some client in court. So, you want to get out now? You want to get out? Just say yes and you'll be out. They can tell me the other part, you now have a record. So, what does that do? As whatever they say about the projects, you can't get in. So, if I'm a mother, and you're my child, in the projects, 
you can't come visit me. Now, I'm going to try to deal with that just for a few minutes. So if it's in the last five years, the weather has been incredible. But you think about 10 years ago when temperatures dropped to 10 to 6 and your child cannot come visit you. So what do you do? You just pray that you can sneak them in at night and nobody sees you. Now that's a reality. 2020, a reality. You can't get a you can't get a loan to go to college. I don't care how smart you are. It always amazes me that most black males go into college, into prison with a fourth grade reading level. And many of them come out with a degree. You mean you couldn't teach this boy before? You had to wait until he went uh, to jail, prison, to, to, to educate this boy? One out of three have a record. You can't get a civil service job. And I was with a young woman last week. I said, well, can't some of that be expunged? She said, there's no such thing. I learned this last week. I'm always learning as expunging in New York. I said, wow, I did not know that. I've been telling people, oh, your child got a record? Just go here and get it expunged. He said, no, that does not exist. So you know, kids do dumb things. Actuaries say, uh, my children are 13 months apart. The girl is the oldest. But when I went to get insurance for them, I had to pay more for the boy than for the girl. Because they figure you're gonna die some way before you're 35. It's a sad connotation on where we are. So we have one out of three, you do the math, in prison. 5% are dead before they're 35, for whatever reason. Uh, when I was working in New York, one boy just you know, they have a yellow thing around and they, they got, they're fixing the road or the tunnel. He and three others just fell in it, playing. All three died. So things like that. Boys tend to do things that girls tend not to do. So you're saying, I know that, why is she here? You know, I, I can look that up in the book because I'm gonna tell you why. We know now in the last two years or so that black females are the most educated group in the United States. The problem is they can't find a mate. Now, you don't think that that's a problem. That's real. My daughter and her friends, all of them chose to have a child. You know, they got their own car, their own apartment, they got a good job, but they can't find a name. That's a problem. And at a conference that I was at two years ago, black social workers, one of the women's uh, uh, conference leaders said, deal with this too. 50% of black ball players, so you got soccer, basketball, baseball, uh, bas uh, whatever else, football, are married to white women. Mm -hmm. Yes? Um, I just want to say, I was a 
sub, to be a sub, and finally I got hired to be a teacher. And I'm a kindergarten teacher now in Yonkers. My, well, my whole family has helped me with my children. You know, I had them 18 and 19. But I went back to get my master's, and I finished at Mercer College. And now my daughter, by myself, well, with my aunts, well, actually, I'm Joshua's cousin. The very first one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right here. <laughs> but my girls now, one, in, she just finished on Jay for criminal justice, and she's in her last year of um, nursery, nursing school. And, um, but without, like, your family, I feel like you can't. How can you be my family when I can't let you in my apartment? Because if I let you in, mm -hmm. The, and I got three other right. kids. That's what I'm saying. Like we will be evicted. I have lived with every aunt. That's how I have survived. You know what I mean? I've lived with her. I've been with her. And that's with you need that village in order to make something of yourself. And not everybody has a village. Because now I'm a teacher, and I can see that for myself. You know, a lot of parents they say I don't. I just can't comprehend it myself because I know I've had my family, they've had my back, they've watched my children when I did double shifts and, and you're you know, blessed. Yeah. So I really was, you know, but um that's the thing with um not every black family, but that's the thing. You need to support each other in order to um build yourself up and get by, you know. But everybody doesn't have a I do a whole thing in my class about uh removal, black removal. removal. And I know when uh, I lived at 169th Street, 170th in Washington Avenue. They made a decision which was a horrible decision, but they knew what they were doing. That was a functioning uh, community. Uh, people were working, place was clean, and now you have to go there and fight and, and fight the uh, the rats as well as some of the young men there and women, because some of the girls are almost just as bad. So it, it, it's, you know, if I have my way, the children would be this way and that. They, I would teach my students about the think tank. What is a think tank? It makes a decision. For anybody around my age, do you remember in the 60s, they said in the movies, they had people on petition in the movie, uh, you're going to be paying for TV. What? Pay for what? <laughs> they put it in your mind, they put it in your mind. And so when they start charging you in the late 70s, early 80s, you thought it was all the time. They project. So they knew if they, the way to get rid of black folks is to put them somewhere where they don't know anybody, they have no support systems, and we become scared of each other. That's a wonderful way. I used to call myself a street social worker because I didn't have any fears. So that that's the way. You remember, was it 15 years ago? And most people in this room can remember 15 years ago. You will not have any money in your pocket. All will be done with a card. How's that going to be done? You got to put money to go on the train and the bus and all that. When you park, you have to whip out your card, right? And then they make a, a, a statement in New York two weeks ago, uh, passed a ordinance that restaurants and all these other people must take 
people cash because I'll let people go to uh, lend and pay and you want your check pay the check cashing place so they have they have money in their pocket I'm sure that will change quickly but you remember that you will never have to use a car I mean money again so whatever they do they know that they have made you think about it and everybody says oh no you just use your card but there are people who are not worthy, supposedly, of, uh, of that kind of support from these major companies, Bank of America, Chase, you name it, City. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't want to interrupt you, right? But you was on to something about uh, black women. Yeah, I was getting uh, right back to it. Yes, yes, please. Uh, <laughs> now we have a problem. My daughter, as well as several of her friends, all in the same age, have made a decision to have a child by themselves. But they're not necessarily, unless it's an uncle or grandfather, is they a male in their lives. <coughs> you know, people can, what do you call it, put your eggs in storage, or, you know, have the, put a design of baby. I want my baby medium brown, this and that. And this. So, where is the male in these? And oh my, it's incredible. Almost all of them have boys. I'm, I'm trying to think of who has a girl. Almost all of them have boys. What is this saying? Now, how do we raise them? Do we send these boys to private school and what do they have? There's a white girl next to them. It is a major problem. You may not look at it as a problem because everybody you know, children are just wonderful. But your daughters, your granddaughters, your nieces will grow up. Who will they have? You can't parent all the time. When I was teaching, I would say, I don't care how good a woman is, she is not going to be a male. She could be the best, you can say, oh, you see, everybody who knows me in this room, you see Teresa, I guess she got her children, they playing soccer, they playing baseball, they playing this, I'm not a male. When my sons would look at TV with their father, they would talk about, come on over here, and they'd be jumping up and hollering and, and carrying on. I'll take them to a, a ballpark, but I'm not going to be doing that. And I don't believe it's genetics. I just, I'm just not into jumping up and smacking somebody down because someone made a home run. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so how do, you know, and they greet each other differently. We hug, hi. They greet each other, punching them in the chest, knocking them out. <laughs> uh, how do then, we help our boys to become boys. They are dying for males in elementary school. And I know you have a, the Fairview Sons, but a lot of people don't have, that have males don't have a man in their life. What are we talk, telling our boys? This is to deliver. Please don't look at me like y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all know what I'm talking about. 
this is a major dilemma. We just don't talk about it. We're going to tell you, you know, I got a PhD the other day, and so-and-so got a doctorate, and so-and-so is teaching here and there, but we're not going to deal with the issues that's confronting us. So that means a lot of females will never have a mate in their lives. And you can raise your children, and you know, my son is now, and they, they were lifeguards in this building. One son is in Atlanta, the other son is in Bayonne, and only two that are here are my daughters. What are we teaching our women? Because it comes a time when they're between 35 and 40, they're looking like these eggs are almost scrambled. What are we teaching our daughters? What are we teaching our sons? How do we protect that old, that old fresh boy? How do we help him? How do we just hug him and say, you don't have to do that? Yes, ma'am. I'm going to be very community-minded right now <laughs> because Ms. Murphy, Dr. Murphy points out the things we don't talk about in our community. We don't talk about male influence as a positive, powerful thing that our boys really need. We have organizations, you know that. We have the Kappas, the Alphas, the Omegas, and all of them, and they all have boy groups. They have groups that they work with. But we still have failure in our educational system on such a level that we cannot put a finger in the dike. And that is what the organizations are doing with their boys. They are meeting, but if you meet with a group once a month and that child has needs, that once a month is just a scratch across the surface. So it is a powerful question. What are we going to do to empower our boys to be men? And especially in today's climate of multi-sexuality, where there's so much confusion about sexuality, how do we ensure their safety as well as their mental health? All right? And it does, I'm speaking, because it falls on black women. Black women with sons. So I love that you bring that up because it is a problem. Now in our churches, we generally have a lot of men in our churches, in our mosques. In the mosque, they're separated. The men go one way, the women go another. And so the young boys are somewhat transitioned to follow those men. And But in the Christian churches, it's a little more diverse. So the issues are more diverse, because you have more autonomy. What are we going to do as mothers? Who do we look to? How do we ensure the next generation of males? Because we're at a precipice now that is so dangerous, and what we know is that the street, the gang life, is claiming them yes. because they're looking for families. That's right. The gang life is training them, and as a result, they die. Mm -hmm. So the challenge again is back to us as women. What do we do? And in the NAACP, because this is this is our meeting, how do we articulate solutions? How
how do we articulate the advocacy that's needed, specifically the families and ensuring family stability? And we look to you, our membership, to participate in a way that makes us lead in this. So yeah, we have six game changers. All right, do we have our young people in those game changers? Do you know that our youth division is struggling? That on paper we have 50 names because parents have paid the $30. But do the parents get them to the meeting? No, I'll tell you no. Okay. We gotta, we gotta have young people like you with a mind for this. I don't have it. Don't talk about like young, young, young advisors. I mean, when I talk about mentoring, and then we need advisors in the NAACP to work with our young people. So I gotta speak up, because this is like having a bully pulpit and not using it. So I gotta speak up for our young people. And I see Ingram Taylor here with our XO people. You know Ingram? She's working with our XO people. Thank God. And XO is an arm of the NAACP that is strengthening young people of all sexes. But the big question you asked, Dr. Murphy, is real. What are we women who are challenged by this, who are raising young men by ourselves. What are we gonna do to provide the support that we need to make them men? I, I, I want you to take this to heart. Women secretly talk about it, younger women. But we gotta make a program about this. My. I'm in Good for Girls across the street at the church, and I and my daughter went through the uh, Dolphine. What was the name of the program she went through? The youngest one, that Black Social Workers. Um, right to passage. Right yeah, to thank you. Right she went through that. and she has a twin brother. My former husband is a fireman, and uh, we were very into our Africanness. And I called. I said, brother. We don't have anything for the boys. My daughter's boy. Her twin brother's boy. It's not there. She was 13 when she went through the rights of passage. We got to do something, my brother. We talk. We talk. And when we lose, an, uh, each time we lose a child, whether he's killed, whether he goes to jail, whether he marries a white woman, and I, mm -hmm. I might be offending some people, but that's real because where does it leave the black female? By herself. You say, well, my former husband, he's still living. I have a son, two sons. No, because you know, and everybody who's around my age, we get old. Nobody really wants to be alone. No, we can't ask our children. Sure, my children call. I have to have an eye, what do you call it? Operation next week. I'll take you, Mom. That's fine. But don't we deserve to have somebody? I just asked you that. And I've been told to sit down now. But I want to. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I am what we've done today, listening to something I did two weeks ago, 
and listening to what this horrible person said in London. These are these two pieces are very important to me. Next week, when we come back, Halima and myself, I'd like to talk about what are we doing with men. And I don't think it's just United States. I think it's all over. And I believe in the think tank. I believe that the imprisonment of black males was a think tank idea. I also believe that, and truly I don't have much against it, but the volumes I do have against, that as soon as too many black men get money, no longer is a sister beautiful and all that stuff. We need to talk about this in depth. You know, when we were in the civil rights movement in the 60s, we would say, if you cut me, I bleed too. And it's the same way with women over 55. We want companionship, but apparently we're no longer appealing to black men. The black men that are out here, statistics indicate that we're something like three million men are something like three million less than black females. And I think that that's probably a very good statistic. But you got to add in that other stuff. You don't even want to marry me. Hmm. Thank you. Murphy and Friends. Remember the uh, email T as in Teresa N O N A 45 at gmail.com. Thank you.